0: And let's get this ball rolling. Allow me to introduce you to my beautiful friend, Steph Wanless. Steph is not only the co founder and editor director of Found Regional magazine, but also a lover of good grammar, good gin, and good times. When she's not busy crafting stories, interviewing fascinating individuals or meticulously editing articles, she can be found lost in thought, planning her next 10 stories. Her mission with Found Regional is to illuminate the tapestry of regional New South Wales, celebrating the extraordinary people, businesses and creativity that weave together in its unique narrative. But today we are turning a spotlight onto Steph herself. In this episode, we have a heart-to-heart conversation about Steph's experience as a parent of premature babies. We dive deep into the emotional roller coaster and the practical challenges of those critical days and weeks following childbirth, where she had to trust in others to become the lifeline to keep her precious little babies alive. We'll also explore the ongoing challenges of post-traumatic stress and anxiety that Steph has faced. Remember, If you're going through a tough time, there is no shame in seeking help. Reach out to a friend, a professional, or a helpline like Lifeline on 13 11 14. You are not alone. Now, before we dive into this conversation, you know I like to let you all know what to expect in regards to trigger warnings so that you can work out if this is the right episode for you today. Steph and I will be discussing her experiences with premature birth and the NICU. So if this topic isn't right for you today, please feel free to skip the episode and we will see you next Monday. So let's get started. Welcome Steph to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ali. Great to be here.
0: I love to start every podcast with asking our guests what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? (laughs)
1: I'm so glad that you gave me a little heads up for this one because (laughs) I have prepped. I'm not good with this kind of questioning because for me, it falls into the realm of fantasy and um, coming from such like a, yeah, like human to human storytelling background. (laughs) I was like, I can't relate. Like I can't even begin to think of where I fall into that animal space. So I actually asked my kids Because I thought that would give a more, uh, yeah, unique and honest answer, I guess. So I I even have it written down. My daughter, who is six, Ella, she said that I would be a lion because I am calm but fierce, which was super interesting. Um, And then my son, Ted, who is almost 10, said that I would be a dolphin because I'm always laughing and bring joy into people's lives.
0: That's a beautiful (laughs) compliment from both your children.
1: Very sweet, very sweet. But those animals are not similar,
0: Steph. So uh, (laughs) if we were going to ask your husband, what would he say?
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I have no idea what he would say. I have no idea what he would say. See, that's why I had to prep because I just can't even, I can't, my head doesn't operate (laughs) in that
0: that way. Which we'll get an <laughs> understanding of today, right? Because we're going to be talking yeah. a little bit about your, particularly your creative brain, which is phenomenal and constantly on the go, but it's creative in, in like you said, in human story and that connection piece as opposed yes. to fantasy.
1: Mm, yeah, that's it. That's it. And also just, you know, usually being the one who's directing the line of questioning and having control over the angle and the path that we take. So yeah, things like that, questions like that in particular will throw me <laughs> entirely, but I'll give it a red hot go. What you're saying
0: is <laughs> yeah. this translates to, you're going to change your questioning style after this interview because you're going to realise what it's like to be on the other end of the yes, coin.
1: Yes. And when I am interviewing people, they do often say like, you know, where when have you shared your story? What have, you know, Where have you talked about your life? And I actually say, Oh, that's a good point. Like I haven't, I haven't done it. So being here today is really important to me. It's something that I want to get more comfortable with in myself and be able to show the people who do, you know, give me the honor of sharing their stories that I can do it too and they can have a listen to this. I didn't
0: realize this is the first time sharing your story.
1: I don't go personal yeah. with my myself.
0: So on that note, how are you feeling right now then before we even begin? Like, are you nervous? Are you feeling vulnerable? Are you like, let's just get into it? I'm a little bit
1: nervous. Again, I think because the content, it was reliant on me to bring it to the party where like I know that I can get interesting stories out of anyone. <laughs> and I know that's you, like you can do that too. You know, I've, I've listened to the podcast, so I am fully aware of how good you are at what you do too. So I know I'm in safe hands, but I'm yeah, a little bit nervous, I'm not vulnerable. I'm not afraid of of going deeper. Like, I think that's what human connection and 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 drawing out that really powerful story is all about. And I I ask people to do that all the time, as I said, so I'm kind of, Yeah, I'm a bit keen to to give it a go myself.
0: Well, no pressure, no pressure. I'm just going to have a sip of water over here and take a moment. Do it. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe the best place to start then, Steph, maybe a really nice place for me and for the listeners, because I haven't heard your story, is maybe taking us back to a time before kids, you know, painting a picture of what your life looked like as you started to kick off your career and where it was before you fell pregnant.
1: I'd studied journalism, like I'd I'd known for for a very long time that I'd wanted to, I want to be a writer. So I knew as soon as I finished high school, I'd go into that journalism degree, but I actually landed roles in ad sales and digital media management and things like that for several years before I finally took a leap into a writer position for a publishing house in Balmain, which came along with a, a massive pay cut, as you can imagine, from being in sales for so long. But yeah, so I had just started working at this publishing house in Balmain. It was a custom publisher. We did a, lo- a lot of different print publications and newsletters for various associations. So it could be things like real estate and finance and and tech. And, you know, the classic one I always refer to is my first editor gig was for a magazine for purebred dog breeding. So it was for Dogs New South Wales. So that was interesting. I also did some stuff for Mars and m and and, you know, stuff like that. So what I really learned there was that you can find a story anywhere, you know, out of, out of any kind of industry or subject matter. It, it could seem like the most dry kind of industry that you'd ever <laughs> approach. But as soon as you find the people and get talking to the people, you can find some magic you know and that's what i really was starting to to learn there and became very proud of the opportunity to to carve out those stories for for people who wouldn't normally have the opportunity to share them so yeah but while there i'd been there probably only like four to six months before my now husband actually joined the business as an
0: editor. The same publishing company?
1: The same publishing company.
0: And were you guys together?
1: No, no. So I met him there, sorry. Yeah, he had come over from England. He's from, yeah, northeast UK and he joined the business and yeah, it wasn't like an immediate thing but, you know, I think – i don't know 6 to 12 months later we'd started seeing each other and he actually worked his way up to chief content officer i think was the title so he that meant he was overseeing the entire editorial Team at the publishing house, me being one of them. We did actually end up having a manager placed in between us just so that I didn't have to directly report to him because (laughs) that could be a bit awkward. And I probably didn't want to be going to him asking him permission for certain things in my role. So the managing director very kindly made that arrangement for us. So that was great. But yeah, we knew what we wanted out of our life together very quickly. And I think we'd been together maybe two to three years before falling pregnant and like very planned, you know, very wanted. So, yeah, that happened and it. I ended up starting my maternity leave when I think I'd been there almost four years, you know, I, and I, I really felt like I'd found my feet finally in, in editorial and I was doing what I loved. I was doing what I was passionate about. I was refining, you know, my skill set both in like writing and interviewing and and things like that. So, yeah, while I was obviously thrilled to be pregnant, please don't take that the wrong way, (laughs) it did certainly push the brakes on that side of me.
0: And I think that's something Steph that often isn't spoken about. I mean, I spoke about in my interview around how I grieved. I was pregnant and I grieved for how am I going to not work in the position that I love so much and I'm so passionate about. It didn't mean that I didn't want my baby. It didn't mean that I wasn't so excited about being pregnant, but there was this like right next door, this other feeling of like, God, I've worked so hard to get here and I love what I do and I'm passionate about it and I can't imagine a world without it.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. So all of those things and then some were were running through my head. I was also incredibly unwell with my first pregnancy pregnancy it was that classic where they say it's morning sickness, but I had morning sickness 24-7. I couldn't keep down water. I was bedridden for two weeks. I had to go to hospital a couple of times to be put on a drip to be rehydrated. So yeah, it wasn't like a pretty glowing, you know, festival over here. It was, yeah, a horrible, swollen, nauseous mess, basically. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I was certainly, everything came to a grinding halt, like creatively, mentally, physically all in one go so it was an an awakening I guess of what it actually means to step into motherhood
0: yeah do you know it's funny when I when I talk to people that are pregnant it's kind of like two sides of the fence there's the ones that are like it's the best I ever felt and I'm like really yeah I don't think I had four hours of my pregnancies where I felt remotely even close to the best I've ever felt and it's just can be such extreme experiences can't it
1: Yes, yes, I hear women talking about how they um, loved being pregnant, you know, and they just felt so whole and and everything, which is beautiful. Like, what what a bloody incredible experience! But that certainly wasn't mine.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and then your first little one, Ted, he came early, didn't he? He was quite he did. quite early. Really? He did. Yes, he
1: came early. So he came at 32 weeks and six days. So uh, that seven week early mark, it was pretty, pretty big. It was a spontaneous labor. I actually knelt down and my waters just broke. I knelt down to feed the cats, I remember. (laughs) And my waters just broke and wouldn't stop. Marty was at work. Thankfully, my parents were actually staying with us at the time. So I had someone in the house with us. Obviously, we were living in Sydney. We were in Concord. Marty came home and we had, you know, that fun drive to hospital down Parramatta Road to RPA. And look, I was so aware of how early he was. But I have to say that there was this kind of bizarre calmness that had had kicked into me the second my, my waters broke. And I just felt somehow, even from that first moment, that everything was going to be okay. Like I could have been completely delirious and absolutely kidding myself, but I just, I I remember feeling calm, even though it was so early. The doctors did try, you know, I think they inject steroids and stuff, don't they, to try and put a halt on labor or at least delay labor. And my body wasn't having any of it. So yeah, it just, it just didn't stop. And um yeah, he was there. I think it was about fourteen hours later <laughs> from that from that moment of the waters breaking. So
0: Did they did they know why? Did you find out why you went into labour so early? No. Look,
1: since since then and since my second baby, Ella, because she was also early, but she was six weeks early. They've, you know, I guess looked at my body a little bit more. I mean I'm quite short torsoed, like I'm quite short. They were were saying, you know, it could even be something as simple as there wasn't a lot of space in there. They've even recently, and it was bizarre that they didn't notice this when I was actually pregnant, but interestingly, my uterus apparently is what's called a bicornuate uterus, which means it's like a love heart shape. (laughs) So the baby will only grow up into one side of the heart. So rather than it being like that, it's like that in a heart shape for listeners, sorry, and, yeah, the baby will grow up into one half of the heart. So they run out of room really quickly. Is that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So but they didn't know that. No one noticed that until after I'd even had the second child as well. So that would have been handy information to have. But, look, also there's a family history. Like I was preemie. I was four weeks preemie. So they say sometimes, you know, that can can play a role as well. But yeah, no, no, no real answers. Just, you know, it is what it is. And we were very lucky that that both of them were were a good size for being so Premy and and you know, could put up a good fight.
0: And so what did the what did those days look like post Labour, those early, early days?
1: Pretty horrible and lonely. Ted wasn't good. He wasn't in a good way. He had a collapsed lung and wasn't breathing well on his own. So, you know, you don't get those moments of the baby arriving and, you know, them being put on your chest and you having that skin to skin time or anything like that. He was immediately placed into, you know, his plastic crib and wheeled away. And I remember Marty looking at me because obviously I, you know, just (laughs) had just given birth. So there was stuff that I needed to to continue on within that in that room and he just looks at me and I said I'm fine follow Ted like follow him which was I remember that being a really poignant moment because it was the first time you know in our relationship that we kind of realized that we needed to split, like that the if that makes sense, like the, the the child comes first now, you know, like from here on in, it doesn't matter like whatever's happening to me is going to happen to me. He's the priority. So you need to go with him and and be with him. So the first time I actually saw Ted was in a photo that Marty had taken in that moment that he followed him down to the Premier ward at RPA, and he was all, you know, bandaged up, he had a drip on his arm. It was a posterior birth, so he came out looking up at the stars. So his forehead, you know, was incredibly swollen and very badly bruised. So he had bandaging around his head and he was on CPAP immediately because he just couldn't breathe. His lungs weren't operating. So he had, you know, all the tubes and prongs, his nose and and everything. So, yeah, you don't really see much of, you know, a beautiful newborn in that moment you see a a tiny infant who is weak and strapped up and I saw it in a photograph so once I had you know because you have to obviously deliver the placenta and go through all of that process and I had had a, a very minor epidural like I could still feel my legs but I had had a minor epidural so there was a you know I had to obviously give my body time to get over that and and be able to you know Move again properly and safely before I was put in a wheelchair. A few hours later, and wheeled down to
0: NICU. Do you remember what was what was happening for you in your mind during those few hours, or were you just exhausted and just dealing? I um <laughs> Oh gosh, I think,
1: I think there was obviously a healthy amount of shock running through my system and adrenaline as well i guess i felt calm in that i knew that marty was with him Mm. i remember laughing like with the doctor like my way a lot of the time is also just to make conversation with people to distract myself and make jokes and the doctor who was helping me post labor was his surname was king so he was dr king So I was kind of joking with him that my son had been delivered by a king. Like I I remember that line, you know, and that's just what I do. Like I just, I talk and I ask questions of the people around me a lot of the time to distract, I guess, from what's going on internally. And I think I fell into that, that mode, even in that moment then so well,
0: it sounds like it's a coping skill for you as well it serves you it serves you professionally but even personally mm. that's a really good example of where some of the skills and tools we learn in a professional setting can really yeah be powerful at a time when we really need them when you know adversity yeah. hits or a challenge comes our way
1: yeah absolutely mm. absolutely no that's that's what I did but yeah look I remember being very you know, you know, I was trembling. You know, I was shaking all over. I obviously had some drugs running through my system as well, let alone the emotional impact of, of what was going on. So, mm. yeah, I remember physically shaking and, yeah, just being pretty out of it.
0: <laughs> when did reality start to kick in? When did you realise that you had a baby that was seven weeks early and that the road could be long and tough?
1: Probably not until... Uh, I, w- I was wheeled down and could actually see him, you know, face-to-face because face. then you're in the ward, you know, with all the other premie babies and to this day, like I, I, I remember being wheeled through, you know, like the, the button that you press for the doors to open automatically, the hand sanitizer, you know, in the dispenser on the side of the door so you have to do that as you know before you even set foot in the ward you know there's a there's a smell about spaces like that which is disinfectant and sanitizer and and things like that and then that newborn smell as well I guess is kind of trying to fight its way through all of that but um yeah when you you get there and they're, they're just lined up you know in their little plastic boxes and it's the the heart monitor and and stuff plugged in next to them and when you can see that green line tracing their their heartbeat and you hear the the beeping it's like just all of your senses are i guess attacked in a whole new way that you've never never felt before and it's intense you know it's it's intense the heart monitor was the thing i think that really hit home and because I saw it was inconsistent and I saw he wasn't breathing well a lot of the time. And, and look, I, I sat with him from morning till night for as long as I possibly could. I had I had two nights in the ward to recover. They put me in a private room actually, just so that I didn't have to be near mothers who had their babies obviously with them and next to them. That was a hard experience there was nowhere for Marty to stay either so he had to go home so you you expect to have your baby with you the whole time the second that they arrive right and I just didn't I had to trust other people to look after him immediately so yeah you know I had to leave him to to go up to my room for those first two nights but the the worst night of my life was that third day when I had to go home and leave him, and I just remember falling to my knees in our bedroom in Concord, and just like, it was that real guttural, like earthy, raw wailing, and I didn't think it would hit me this way emotionally, but it has, (laughs) Um, yeah, because I couldn't be with him, and I had to trust other people to keep him alive, and that that was really confronting obviously because that's your job you know that that was my job to get him here and then look after him so yeah look you um you get into a routine though you know when things like that happen you um adjust and you get into a routine and mine was getting home from the hospital and I'd call Like probably, you know, as soon as I got home, I'd probably call around that seven o'clock and just, you know, the line is, hi, my name's Steph, I'm Ted's mum, you know, can you please tell me how he's doing? And all the nurses would gather and you'd get an update and then I would call again before I went to sleep. So that could have been, you know, like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whenever it was, I'd call again, the same line again, hello, I'm Steph, I'm Ted's mum, can you tell me how he is? There were some nights where if I woke up, like at 1am, 2am, I'd call again. And they do tell you, you can call anytime. And I did. <laughs> and then I would call as soon as I got up in the morning. So that could be 6am, deliver the same line. And the, the thing is, nurses are changing all the time as well, right? So you don't really get to form you know, a connection or whatever with just one single person looking after your child. So it, it changes and you often have to repeat the update from several hours before. Like they might have mentioned that he was struggling with something and you're like, oh, well, how is this going? And they might not have read notes yet, you know, handover notes yet. So you're kind of repeating yourself a lot of the time. And then I would get on the bus as early as I possibly could from our house. Marty didn't have any parental leave, so he was straight back into work immediately. So he was kind of fighting his own challenges, you know, being in a high management role in that publishing company still and having to lead a team of people after, you know, his firstborn son had just arrived in the world in this way. And I was on a bus down Parramatta Road, you know, at seven o'clock every morning to arrive at RPA swing open those doors, use that hand sanitizer, smell that smell and listen to that beeping and I would just sit next to him the whole day. And our parents weren't in Sydney. You know, our parents aren't located in in Sydney. We didn't have any, you know, family in the centre of Sydney there. I was the first of my friendship group to have a baby by quite a way so I didn't have any friends around who had had children either. So I was alone actually. Those full days, and yeah, you'd—he stopped breathing a lot, you know. He and that machine—you'd—you'd you'd hear the beeping stop, and there were a couple of occasions, you know, where the nurses and the doctors come running, and you have to step back to give them space to figure out what what's going on and readjust his machine and everything. And that just—you um, don't really think about it how much that became my norm. And you know, Marty would arrive as early as he could once finishing work. So that was often like six o'clock in the evening so that he could have like an hour and an hour and a half sat beside him. And then we'd drive home. I'd make that first phone call for the night and round and round we went for three weeks. (laughs) So look, in the grand scheme of things, like emotions aside, yes, it's hit me more than I expected it to, but my God, we were lucky. You know, in, in so many ways we were lucky. Yeah, Ted Ted wasn't well, but he was fighting and he was improving each day. There were families around us with babies far tinier who didn't live in the city. You know, it's particularly poignant to me thinking of that now that I do live regionally and I'm so passionate about the people who live live here as well because they, they had to leave their children, you know, for for a week, for two weeks, you know, in the hands of those people. Yeah, I had to leave him overnight, but they had to to leave him for a week because they had to go back to the farm or they had to go back to a business or, you know, they had to go back to other children who they were, you know, raising in their hometown or something. And then if you think about the cost of travel and, you know, accommodation and things like that in, in the city as well, you know, it's not worth thinking about. Like our time was tough, but we were on the ground, you know, like if I needed to be there with him at 3am, I could make it happen. You know, there are families there who couldn't. So, you know, I do do count myself incredibly lucky for that. It wasn't until recently, you know, talking to Marty about it and, and his experience because he was, you know, had to be separated and, you know, put on a poker face, I guess, day in, day out until he could arrive in the evenings. And, and he told me, probably a couple of years back now that he actually he genuinely thought that Ted wasn't going to make it and that shocked that shocked me but then I stopped and thought well yeah he he didn't get to be close to him like he didn't get to be right there next to him and and watch that breathing you know. So of course his mind would be running a million miles an hour because he's separated from us, you know, um, and, you, and you, don't, you don't know what's happening. You're not getting those constant updates from the nurses while you just sit there for hours on end and then tear yourself away to go to the hospital, you know, cafeteria and <laughs> eat something horrific and then, and then go back. So that was tough. But, you know, he's almost 10 now, so <laughs> he's good. She's good.
0: And it, it I think it's that it's that moment that if someone could tell you that everything's going to be okay I'm sure it would ease some of it but what it wouldn't ease and you spoke to it so beautifully is being separated from your child like mm. not having that choice. Yeah. Having to trust that other people are going to look after your little one mm. as well as you would or even better, you know, mm. and save yeah. the life of your child. It's not an option and you don't get to choose.
1: Yeah. No, and it's something that, uh, yeah, again, only in the past couple of years have I kind of realised the impact of that on me as a parent. You know that that is that is trauma that I kind of didn't really count as trauma. And in like even just like a passing session with a with a therapist a couple of years ago, and the, and that came up out of the blue. I wasn't even talking to her specifically about that, but she said, you know that it's looking like a, a strong likelihood that you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, from from the, those experiences with both your children. And I thought, oh, yeah, like I, I guess. And then if I stop and look at the way I parent, you know, the, the way I am as a mother, I've always been quite anxious. Like I, I try to be cool and calm and collected in front of them, but I, I am anxious. I was particularly anxious, obviously, when they – were both very young and I had every monitoring system, you know, you could get to monitor their breathing, the discs and things that you can slide under their mattresses. Because I was so used to, and this was with both Ted and Ella, I was so used to being able to physically see on a screen that they were breathing. So when I brought them home and I didn't have the reassurance of that machine in front of me, I, I panicked. You know, and I and I needed that that baby monitor the whole time. When it got to the point where the monitor wasn't, you know, a thing anymore, like it wasn't needed. They were obviously getting older and I can't track their breathing, you know, when they're four, five, <laughs> six or
0: whatever. Ten, 12, 16.
1: Ten. Yeah. <laughs> Teenagers. Exactly. Oh my God, believe me, I would if I could. Unplugging that and taking that away, that was a really huge thing. Like that really hit me. And and if I'm perfectly honest, you know, even you know, prepping for this chat with you a little bit, I've, you know, I'm acutely aware that I still, I still check that they're breathing. I think that's quite a normal parent thing. I do appreciate that. I think a lot of parents would still do that, but like they're now six and, and as I said, basically 10, but I have to check them twice before I go to sleep. And then if I wake up during the night at any point, I have to get up and check them again. And I check that their chests are rising up and down and that I can hear them breathing. And if I try during those like early hours, you know, late at night, early in the morning, whatever it might be, if I try to say to myself in my head, Steph, don't be ridiculous, they're fine, then a voice comes in saying, Steph, if you don't check this time, this could be the time that they're not breathing. And that's that's just now, that's just still, you know, almost a nightly occurrence for me. So yeah. And it's not something I ever think about because you just keep it in your own head, don't you? You know, it's just something that you do and it's become such a massive habit, but you know, that's fueled from all of that experience with them coming into the world. You know, not, I don't leave them with people outside of family. It's, it's always like my parents or Marty's parents, you know, or siblings or something like that. I just, I can't leave them with a babysitter who's not you know, part of the family, and I also really struggle to be away from them overnight. So, still now, you know, two two nights away is my absolute limit. My absolute limit, and um, and it's on that that next morning. You know, I'm chomping at the bit to get
0: home. And what's the fear? You know, when you're away for those nights, what comes up for you?
1: I think because I'm not close. You know, probably deep down, it throws me back to to not being by their bedside, you know, when they're teeny tiny and not not being able to physically hold them. It's my job, you know. It was my job to be near them and I was forced to not be near them. So now, you know, even as as they grow, if I have the choice to be near them and be that number one carer here on site, of course I'm going to take that choice. Like I, you know, I've and I've spoken to other friends since and, you know, people who get excited about going away on holiday, you know, without the kids or going on holidays where there are kid camps or, you know, something like that where you can leave the kids in, you know, with other people during the day to do different activities so that you can go to the beach or, you know, a cocktail bar or something like that. I can't, I just, that is of no interest to me whatsoever. You know, we're all in, you know, I am, I am all in all the time. It's not a holiday to me if I'm not next to them. And now that, um, you know, particularly... Ted, he has struggled with a little bit of anxiety him, himself, like he's he's good, but he's um super emotionally intelligent and a deep thinker and he gets that from me. <laughs> and, you know, I'm very honest, you know, they, both the kids know how they arrived. They know to a certain extent, like the experiences that we had with them, you know, obviously they've seen the photos where they're they're all you know strapped up with tubes and in plastic boxes and things like that. So they know that it was tough and and I've explained, you know, this is why mummy now can be a little bit anxious or like a little bit overprotective or you know wants to know where you are at all times and and things like that. And again, a lot of those things are I'm sure, you know, that's a normal parenting response. You know, if we're in a supermarket and they disappear around the corner of the next aisle and I'm three steps behind them, the panic that sets into me if I don't have eyes on them, you know, I think a lot of people just go, oh, cool, they've just turned the corner, I'm turning the corner in three to four steps' time mm-hmm. and you're going to know that they'll be there around that corner. I just I just don't cope even with with that. Like I can feel it in my chest if I can't physically see them
0: and I can hear for you that it doesn't let up either it's like no and I think you've referred a few times like yes this can be what other people experience with parenting but we all experience experience parenting differently but what I'm hearing for you is that this is a constant in your world and it's a Mm. non-negotiable
1: yeah yeah absolutely and it's like I, I do feel like sometimes I have to particularly if I've been on play dates and things you know with other parents and and kids and you might be At a park, you know, I can't sit down on a park bench next to the park and just watch the kids. I will still follow them around, you know. And if it's a particularly big park or an open park, I won't go to it unless, you know, the kids agree beforehand that they stay together when they're playing in that park so that I can watch the both of them at the same time or if Marty's with me. And so then before we walk into that situation, it's like, Marty, you've got eyes on Ted, I've got eyes on Ella. And we know which child we're responsible for keeping eyes on at all time. Yeah. So there's that component of it as as well, where um, I
0: just can't let go. What does Marty say when, is he the same or does he sort of say to you, you know, you do you or like, what's kind of the language there? I can tell he's
1: the same. I can tell he's the same. He's not a a massive chatter and he's a really private person. So
0: talking about him on the pod's probably not the best thing. (laughs) Yeah. No, 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 he'll be good. Like he'll be happy for me to say these bits.
1: He's very calm and very constant and, you know, probably in a lot of ways the complete opposite of me, which I guess is why it works a lot of the time. But I can tell that it's the same for him because – He's never questioned it, mm. you know. He's he's never questioned me saying, you know, okay, you're on Ted or you're on Ella or whatever. And I I think there's a huge part of him that absolutely joins me in those those fears and those anxieties, particularly because you know, even worse to a certain extent for him, he wasn't by their bedside as i said you know he had to separate entirely for all those hours from day dot
0: and and there's an element to Steph that i think you know i guess my professional hat coming on that says you know is it interrupting your everyday is it interrupting what you're wanting to do or is it how you're choosing to live your life you know cuz this is where you actually want to be and this is actually how you want to parent and i would hope that other people don't judge that because you gotta do you, right? Like you gotta do yeah. you and your experience is different. But I guess if there's that element that it's really interrupting you functioning in the way that you want to function, then it's a different conversation, right?
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I think like with with people who, you know, if we do socialize with them regularly and they have other kids, I actually it often gets to a point where I say, Hey, I need you to know that this is this is how I parent and this is the reason that I parent this way, and I'm not stopping you know that that part of myself you know there could be times where you're at a venue you're at a pub and there's you know somewhere the kids can run to to play nearby or like again if it's around the corner if anything's out of sight it's not happening you know it's it's not not a thing on, on my watch I, I won't do it and I think people can often you know mistake that for being really controlling or I don't know I don't know. I, I do get paranoid. I get some, you know, sometimes about the way I'm I'm viewed as a parent, but that's where I will, you know, step in and say, hey, this is what I've been through. And this is why I'm not negotiating on this. And the kids know, you know, if nothing's hidden, like the kids
0: know. Out of curiosity, do you get any pushback on that? Like, do you get parents that are like, oh, you know, what does everyone accept that and then embrace it? and?
1: Yeah, mostly it's accepted. Good. You know, sometimes it's like, oh yeah, no, the kids will be cool. Like I'm like, ah uh, yeah, no, I'm just going to follow them. Like, <laughs> and I think people see pretty quickly. You know, as you said, that for me, it's a it's a non negotiable. I don't care about, you know, not sitting at a bar with a drink in hand, with with people, you know, around me chatting, if it means leaving the kids to their own devices somewhere that, that's out of sight for me, I don't care.
0: We're sort of starting to lead into like the career and like what's happened post-birth, but we kind of jumped over Ella's birth and so I thought maybe it's worth because she was also six weeks preemie and it might be worth us just jumping back a second and having a conversation about what that experience was like for you and how that looked different. yeah.
1: Little girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So by that point we had moved from Sydney to Newcastle. We left when Ted was one and yeah, bought a bought a property in Newy and set up there. A couple of reasons, obviously just like affordability. But my brother and his wife were also on the ground there. So that was a lovely thing to be close to them, you know, with particularly when, when Ted was so young. But, you know, Marty was still commuting for a couple of years there. So, and yeah, as I said, like, even though my brother and his wife were there, you know, they obviously have their lives. They didn't have babies yet. So they were just working full time and doing their beautiful socializing thing. And I hadn't, you know, I didn't have friends there. So uh, it was a good move, but I was again, alone a lot. And Marty was away for, you know, two nights a week. That was a confronting time in a completely different kind of way. Like I I was happy there, but I, I was lonely. And because Ted had been so unwell and had difficulties with his lungs and, and stuff still, the doctors had kind of said to us, if you can keep him out of daycare, you know, for at least his first two years, three, if, if you can can really pull it off. Then that's beneficial to him, you know, health-wise, because obviously the second they get into daycare, they're exposed to all different kinds of germs and viruses and all those glorious things on a daily basis. So I just knew that I'd stay off work and I'd I'd keep him home, and, and that enabled us to move to Newcastle because I just said I'm not, I'm not coming back to work. Marty and I made that decision that you know he would carry on. Obviously, I would stay off. I couldn't afford, you know, we couldn't have afforded daycare in Sydney and all that anyway. So. You know, we were we were certainly making the right choice to to shift out to to Newcastle. But um, you know, Ted was still in and out of hospital a lot of the time in those first few years of his life. Like if you know he got a cold, then it it, it escalated really quickly. He was asthmatic and he would get bronchitis. We'd be in, you know, isolation a lot of the time. The two of us in private rooms in hospitals to you know. And and the monitoring of the breathing would start like all over again. So that was ongoing and and then that would happen, you know, a lot with with Marty away out of town as well. So
0: again alone. Like not on Marty, but I mean like a lot of this journey you've had to kind of trudge through on your own. Yes. Without that extra support, not because people probably didn't want to be there, but because they just weren't in the same stage or exactly. they weren't physically there or they hadn't experienced a Premier and you know, just all of those things kind of it's the perfect storm really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, look, you know, we've got wonderful parents, you know. I, I would never want it to sound like they're not, you know, the absolute best and, and they are, you know, and they're always just a phone call or, or a text away. But the fact of the matter was that they didn't live there, you know, they don't live near us. And
0: it wasn't their journey to walk, you know. Even if people were physically there having a cup of tea with you on the day, it's still your experience. Mm,
1: yeah, but you get... You know, you get used to it, don't you? You get into the groove and and you find your new routine. and you did.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, like, no, Steph, most of us don't have to get used to that, right? Most of us don't get used to hearing our kids breathe on a monitor. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that became your everyday. That became your norm.
1: Yeah, that was norm. That was norm.
0: You know, it blows my mind to think that you had another child,
1: yeah. Uh, look, I actually, after having Ted, I really, I, I thought I always wanted two kids, and then being through that experience with Ted, I thought, mm, like, I'm actually not sure that I can do that again. So yeah, there were there was a quite a quite a gap, and it was like a, a three, there's three and a half years between them. Yeah, before I felt. I was, I was ready to give it an, another go and look, yeah, we'd, we'd decided that yes, we wanted a second child, but we weren't exactly, you know, trying. We were, you know, we're insanely lucky in that I actually fell pregnant first time, both times, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to spare if you kind of said, yeah, cool. Let's have a baby for us. It just seemed to happen, which is an incredible
0: amount of luck and privilege. But also, a bit of like, whoa, I'm pregnant, you know? Like yeah, whoa, yeah. I didn't even like we just mentioned it yesterday over tea and now I'm having a baby.
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah. Ella came along, she was I was still really physically ill with her, not as much as um with Ted. And I don't know whether that's just part of your body or your mental state that actually goes, do you know what? You don't have a choice here to be bedridden and you don't have someone here, you know, every single night of the week if you need to get driven to hospital. So you've actually got a deal. So I don't know if that was that was part of that where I just ran with it a bit more. I can remember, you know, looking after Ted, you know, as a teeny tiny toddler and pausing to throw up or, <laughs> you know, steady myself or or something. You know, it it wasn't, I guess, as shocking because that's how I was first time round. I knew there was a high chance that that's how it was going to be again. So you run with it, and then I'd actually just finally arranged for Ted to start daycare. He'd he'd been at a, a small childcare centre for a couple of days a week, short days and and things like that, and he was going well. And I was moving him up to a bigger centre. Towards the end of my pregnancy with Ella, and it was his first day in the new centre. And again, very luckily, my mom was with me because because Marty was out of town so much. We'd made the decision that at around that seven week mark, like before um, due date, that I should have someone with me if possible. So mum was with me and. We'd driven to this daycare center to drop Ted off at his first day at school. He wasn't going to be there full time. I think he was still just going to be doing three days a week. And you fed the cat.
0: <laughs> you I fed the literally, cat. Literally, <laughs> and I fed the cat. Should have learned the first time.
1: I literally, you know, was saying goodbye to him and had hung his bag up. And I felt my waters go in that in that daycare room on that. Hi bed. guys, I'm
0: here, everyone. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. My yeah, name is here. Steph <laughs> yeah. And I'm yeah. Broken waters yeah. on the floor. Well, luckily
1: it wasn't like that. It wasn't like it is in the movies. You know, I it, there was a trickle <laughs> and I'm like, I think I think my water's might have just gone. So Did you freak
0: out though? Like was your first were you alarmed or did you have that sense of calmness again? Like what happened in that moment?
1: I had that sense of calmness again. By that point, you know, I, you know, because I had mum there, I also had a really beautiful friend, Sarah. She was pregnant at the same time with her second child, and her firstborn, Otis, is Ted's best mate, and so she was dropping him off at the same time, so she was there with me, and so she obviously knew my whole history as well. And I said, I think this has just happened, and bless her, she pulled a um a nappy out of her
0: handbag. Here you go, here you go.
1: Yeah, stop and just went, hey, just run to the loo and just shove that down your pants just to stop it if that's what's going on.
0: Everyone needs a Sarah. Everyone <laughs> needs a
1: Sarah. Believe me, you absolutely do. If you if you, yeah, had the honour of meeting her, you would know you need that <laughs> woman in your life. So, yeah, I did that and got in the car with mum and drove to John Hunter Hospital and called Marty. And he had literally just arrived outside the office in Sydney and was parking and I said, my waters have gone. I'm at the hospital, and he just got back in the car and turned around and drove all the way back. So yeah, and same thing, exact same scenario. Like they tried to to halt labor and and stop it from progressing. No, nah, no, nah, my body was just like, no, nah, this is this is happening. Ella it didn't give me time. I was all about the drugs and the epidural, like if that was that was possible. Because with Ted. Because it wasn't such a strong – I think there's this real misconception about epidurals actually, like that you have it and you can't feel anything or that you can't move your legs or anything like that. But with Ted, when I had it, it was a a low dose. I could certainly still feel my legs. I could certainly still feel like – every, you know, labor pain. And I knew when I needed to breathe and I knew when I needed to push and I could feel those contractions. So I wanted that with Ella because I felt in control with Ted with that, but the pain was obviously lessened somewhat. Ella didn't give me time for that. And so I, yeah, there there was, that was like, just, I felt everything. (laughs) And that was quite mind blowing as well. I just, yeah, I remember looking, you know, I'm not a quiet person. You know, people who know me will know that I'm not, you know, I'm not quiet at the best of times. So there was some yelling and there was some swearing and you know, I remember looking down at my my doctor and she just, you know, telling me you have to do this. You have to do this. And you know, that that one last ounce of strength, you know, to to get her here, and I hadn't even realised that it had happened. And people like you were yelling at me, like Steph, look down, look down,
0: <laughs> look down. Yeah, and she was, we can't use these words on the podcast, but there was like you, blah 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 blah, yeah, <laughs> you exactly, <looked> down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, why are you yelling at me to look down? And it's because my yelling,
1: yeah, because <laughs> my daughter was there, and I'm like, oh wow. So look with her, I did, I got. About five seconds of her on my chest and Marty got a photo in that moment, which was just incredible. But then she got put into her plastic box (laughs) and wheeled away and Marty followed her and, you know, my mum was home with Ted and it just felt like here we go again. You know, like it just, I, I I wasn't scared, I wasn't panicking, you know, None of those things. I was just like, cool, this is how I, you know, bring children into the world. This is the the way it happens for us. It's going to be the same routine but in a different hospital. So now I just need to go get the lay of the land in this NICU. It's
0: quite pragmatic, really.
1: Yeah. And, I, and you know, I just knew that I needed to figure out how I was going to do it, you know, with having Ted at home and how we were going to juggle, juggle that. So... Yeah, but she was she was stronger, so she didn't have the extent of like breathing issues that Ted did. She she did still need help breathing, and she was on CPAP for four days, and then was weaned off, and she had a day off, but then she needed to go back on for another two days. It was quite remarkable, like Barry might like. I just was blown away by her because Ted had had been on CPAP for two and a half weeks, you know, and then was weaned off gradually from there. And then when he came home, he was still on a feeding tube, you know, like he was. At that point, whereas Ella, by the end of the first week, she was off CPAP and she was consistently breathing on her own and she was, you know, feeding well. And, look, she was she was little and, and all the rest, of course, she was. But she just, you know, and I still feel it with her to this day, she just kind of knew that she needed to just slot in, you know, and be stronger. And it's like, I don't know, there's this weird feeling that we'd both, you know, been there before and we'd We'd done it before, and this is just how it needed to happen and yeah, you know, when Marty could bring Ted in to meet her, you know the photos that we have of his hand reaching through you know the little window in the plastic box and <laughs> holding her hand for the first time, you know that way and and things like that it's all it's a different it's a different scene to what you kind of traditionally picture and and you learn to do weird things like you know you learn to like adjust, you know, all their cords and you learn to change like these teeny tiny minuscule nappies through the plastic box because they have hand holes like where you can slide them open and put your hands in and then, you know, you're changing the nappy that way or like adjusting their breathing tubes that way and, and things like that. You you develop all these mad skills, you know, and you you learn the terminology like as, as well because you need to. Like when nurses and doctors are talking about it, you, you just learn to know what they're saying, what they're asking, and and I guess like you could say, I just felt more, I was so much more equipped, you know, so and and really well armed for that stint, and because she was stronger, it wasn't as daunting, you know, a, as well. So um, she came home after two weeks in in NICU, which you know, again, let's be super pragmatic about this. In the grand scheme of things, it's pretty short. There are families in there for months, you know, months at a time. And those babies are fighting, you know, every single day. And for me to get away, like, yes, it was full on. Yes, it was traumatic. And and yes, it was hard. And yes, it certainly, you know, contributed massively to the parent that I am today. I will still like every single day say how lucky we were because there are some some parents in there and babies in there, you know, just fighting this massive battle. We got away with a relatively short stint, you know. So,
0: And when you think back to those two times, like we've said throughout this podcast, not everyone experiences that. Do you now know some of, I guess, the lessons that you've taken away or some of the mantras or are there, you know, when you said you developed all these skills, are there things now that when you look back on that time, you're like, this is actually, these are the things I've taken away that have helped me in my life or it's, you know, expanded my perspective on life or helped me with these tools that I may otherwise not have had?
1: I think it's perspective,
0: really. It's knowing that no matter
1: how, you know, uh, stressed or worried you feel about other things that are going on, like particularly in your career, right? Because I, I am like career driven. I am, I'm more ambitious than I ever really thought I was in that, in that sense, that's starting to kind of emerge in me. And it's something that you're super passionate about and and you really want to do. It's a big part of who you are, but if something goes wrong during a day at your job, it doesn't matter. You know, like the, the perspective that you learn from, from watching your children like fight for breath is unbeatable, you know. Like nothing else, nothing else really matters, you know. Everything else could be falling down around you. And if I see them, like even when they're annoying, you know, you know, I, lo- I love them. But like even when kids are being full on and annoying, and like it just feels like this relentless like hamster wheel of life, and they're at each other, and you know, all this shit is hitting the fan. And but I. I still t- stop and take stock and s- look at them and I'm like they've got the breath to yell at each other, you know, and they've got, you know, the energy to to laugh loudly. They can run they can scream. They can, you know, they can talk back, you know.
0: Because it could have looked so different.
1: Because it could have looked so different, you know, and, and even with like recurring health issues, right? Like even, yeah, okay, they- they got through and and they're alive and they're thriving and that's absolutely you know incredible and something I'll be forever grateful for obviously, but the fact they also don't have like any recurring health issues off the back of being so premie, you know Ted still does have a bit of asthma that that we've got to be aware of just from having those weak lungs at the at the start, but you know really in the grand scheme of things you can't ask for anything more than than what we've been been given so. Yeah, incredibly lucky, and just that constant reminder to maintain perspective. I guess is what I've taken from it.
0: And Steph, you just mentioned the ambitious career lady, who the girl—that's who I see a lot of, (laughs) and who I get to experience in this world. And I thought we probably haven't really even touched on her. Like (laughs) this podcast, you only use the word (laughs) ambitious. I was like, the audience are going to be like, um, you know, we haven't even touched on that characteristic, right? Yeah, yeah. But that would have been its own road. Host two Premier Babies and career and you like you I think you used the words at the start. It came to a sudden halt.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think when something like that is in you, it's hard to stop, right? You know, particularly in this, you know, creative field where you feel like there are you know, for me, there are always words in, in me that I wanted to share and stories that I wanted to tell and and things that I wanted heard, you know. I started freelancing when Ted was between eight and ten weeks old. So I, I had my laptop on my lap, he would be asleep on my chest, and I would be typing stories or proofreading articles for people or, or things like that. So I, I dived back in pretty quickly. And I think that was important for me in my recovery as well, emotionally, but like mentally, I I, I know myself and I know that I, I needed that. And you know, that certainly hadn't stopped, you know, as as the kids grew. We were lucky that we could manage just with them in daycare part-time. So, they both did, you know, three days a week and I had them on the other days. Obviously, you know, Ted started school first and then when Ella followed just last year, she was in kinder last year. So, yeah, year one this year. That's when, you know, I knew that I would have that space back again, you know, that, that time back again, all of a sudden your two kids are in five days a week. You're like, okay, this is, this is my chance. And I guess I'd been working towards that the whole time while, you know, having them at, at home with me for those few days a week in that I'd very strategically shifted from finance and tech typewriting across to the stories that really interest me, which which are those of, of you know, people and particularly people in, in regional Australia. And that was something I was able to do when we moved from Newcastle to Armidale, which was, I think was four years ago now, which seems insane, just before COVID kicked in. So, you know, coming coming back home was such an important, important thing to do and, and really fueled kind of that that side of that storytelling side of me as well. So, you know, I'm very, again, very, very fortunate that Marty is um, quite content <laughs> writing for finance and and tech uh, and that kind of space. And he manages that on a daily basis in the content agency that we formed together. And it gave me the room to step back from that and try and forge this career in you know regional publishing and storytelling that I have done with Found Regional Magazine and website. So, yeah. One one seller was off, and and they were both in school. Then, you know, boom! Let's launch a
0: magazine and um, a website too. Just launch a magazine, you know. Just again, and every day, yeah. everyone yeah. experiences <laughs> that. Hardly <laughs> just go launch a
1: mag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's been exciting. It's been exciting, and you know, it it all ties together because you know, as I keep saying, that is a huge part of of who I am, and I want the kids to see that. You know, I want the kids to see that i am driven that i'm am ambitious i am passionate and if you want to create something you can go create it you know like it will support you and just make it happen you know don't don't overthink i guess like don't overthink just dive in and and look you know i had a lot of experience in in publishing before doing it it's not like i just went oh how do i start a magazine you know i i had had that experience before having the kids Marty had obviously had that experience as well so we knew the fundamentals like we didn't have to do the research on the process of launching a magazine and you know and I'm the writer you know like for the first three issues I wrote basically the whole thing (laughs) each each time bar I think one article you know so we could keep it on a shoestring you know like And we might have budget for like one photo shoot. But other than that, I was sourcing photographs from, you know, people who were happy to donate or I was running around with my iPhone and I would just write the whole magazine and get it done, you know. And and we've had some incredible people, you know, jump on board, you know, since that initial concept. Claudia, who is based down in Tamworth, I actually worked with her on a on a previous magazine and we just hit it off and she was looking for an opportunity and, you know, she she dived in and she's been with us from day dot part-time. And honestly, it wouldn't have, you know, Found Regional wouldn't have happened the way that it has done without her. She's incredibly switched on and like just commercially and and marketing wise and and partnerships and stuff that she's, you know, gotten off the ground for us she is exceptional so she is a huge asset and a huge part of you know how we've being able to do it and then this year Meg has come on board full-time as our you know digital marketing manager and she's also a really beautiful writer so also I just really need to you know do a big shout out to our beautiful designers Talia and Kristen just incredible like the the pages that they brought to life you know for the magazine and the website as well because obviously that branding carries over that's just been exceptional and our printer Yes Press you know with Michael he's just so fantastic to work with and you know deliver Was a beautiful product every time so thank you to him as well you know that that support is coming in it's still very much like a small family-owned business operating on that shoestring but you know it's got guts it's got guts and it feels good
0: and it's just been nominated it has some awards (laughs) it has just been nominated
1: yeah that is still very much a huge pinch me moment yeah we submitted applications for two or three awards in the Mumbrella Publishing Awards this year and they are the most prestigious publishing awards in Australia. I think they're in their 28th year this year actually. It's a big deal. You know, it's a, it's a big deal. I always, you know, I remember them when I was working in in publishing before having children and it was the, the place to be recognized. And just this week we learned that we were shortlisted for publication of the year. And the cover story article that I wrote on Ben Jackson for Issue 4 has been shortlisted for single
0: article of the year.
1: So... Do you know what? That
0: just (laughs) fills my heart with so much joy after hearing what you guys have been through with the two kids and the challenges. And, you know, we, we only touched on it, right? Like we only touched on the hospital. We didn't talk about, we briefly mentioned what those few years were post. Mm -hmm. We Ted, but we, you know, even with Ella, we didn't get into that. So there was a good chunk of your world that was medical, that was survival, that was drop everything, nothing else matters my role here now is very clear. Yes. And to think that you've been able to come up for air, this is how it feels for me listening to your story, come up for air and kind of poke it out a little bit and be like, oh, what does it look like now the kids are at school? And then bang, like you're firing and you're, and you're driving and you've just got this recognition that is phenomenal. Mm. But I'm so proud of you because of that because I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think you deserve it.
1: Oh, that's very kind. That's very kind. I think, um it is an incredible honor to be like shortlisted against you know these high level publishers you know from cities and and things like that who have been operating for years and years and years the fact that our you know our next issue you know that will mark 12 months since the first issue hit the shelves you know it's only just gone to print so you know in such a short period of time for us to get to this point is is really incredible and i'm just really grateful for, for all of it and for all the people that helped us get here as well. And um yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. Like we don't expect, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not like we're expecting to actually bring awards home. But like the the short list, it's just that, as you said, it's that recognition, you know, to see, to see our names up there. It's just a real fear. I honestly was shaking. Like I, I was shaking all over my hands wouldn't stop trembling when I saw our names on that screen so
0: so good I wish I was there for that moment yeah. that would have been incredible
1: <laughs> it was good
0: oh Steph it's like wow didn't that hour go quickly so like fast. I, I, I remember looking at you thinking mate we're, we're halfway through the story and we've got 10 minutes yeah, to go how are we yeah. gonna do this it turns out I'm quite comfortable being interviewed yeah <laughs> Yeah. clearly <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so I just want to say massively thank you thank you thank so you. much for, for the honesty mm-hmm. for being so real you know and I know it's your gig interviewing others and human story and human connection so you know the power of vulnerability and, and telling being really transparent in the experience but it does not make it any easier when you're sitting in front of the microphone. You can know that intellectually, but when you're telling your story, when you're speaking about your most vulnerable moments in your life, like you just – you brought us all along on that journey with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it
1: hits. Um, it hits harder than you realize. You know, I, I think leading into it, as I said, you know, really didn't expect for it to pack a punch with me emotionally the way that it did. But there you have it. You don't. You don't get the opportunity to talk about it, right? You know, you you don't. It's not something that comes up, and I'm not naturally that kind of person anyway. Who would just, you know spring into that conversation so thank you for the opportunity
0: it's so clear when we listen to you how those foundational blocks have been pivotal in how you are today how you choose to parent stepping into the career finding that ambition and really harnessing it and, and building it from your belly up you know it really we we can track with you that whole road it's fueling and i'm not one to waste time I
1: guess not at all. (laughs) I would say after being through all that, it's like, yeah, if you, you know what you want to do, just, um, just do it, just do it you know. In other
0: words, that translates to watch this space, everyone. Watch this space. If you're not sure what that translates to. Oh my goodness. (laughs) There are some
1: things. Yeah. Oh, look, look. we we know what we're doing, you know, and we're very excited to be doing it. And, you know, these shortlists with Mumbrella are just, you know, just a beautiful big push to keep on doing what we already had planned anyway. So yeah, 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 absolutely watch this space because there's more exciting things to come.
0: (laughs) And I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh.
1: That would have to be my best friend, Jen. We have been thickest thieves since we were 13 years old and yeah we're about to turn 40 so that's a big big chunk of our lives together and yeah she recently moved home actually here to Armidale with her little one as well and she oh my god yes Yes! so that's very exciting but yeah no she just I think it's The power of having someone who has seen you, known you, loved you at at such different stages of your life, you know, through Mm -hmm. teenager to the the 20s and the uni years and then, you know, young adult and first time mum and all those things. An
0: ambitious career woman. An ambitious career woman.
1: (laughs) So yeah, it's someone who knows those inside jokes from... When you were a 14 year old girl, you know, that, yeah. and it still gets me. There's little things that she does. We've got a ridiculous dance called the Abacus. I won't perform it for you, but it is something that comes out at Christmas and it still just gets me every single time. She pulls ridiculous faces and, and things when, you know, you think like no one else is looking and we just make eyes, you know, on each other across the room and there's this face that she'd do and, and, you know, exactly what it means and, you know, The laugh just follows and I have a very like distinctive laugh. Like she. It's a cackle that she can get out of me—a proper, like, high-pitched cackle—and <laughs> yes. um, yes. yeah, it comes out every now and then. But she, she's the one person in the world who can unleash it every single time. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: yeah. That would be her. Thank you so much, Steph. Thank you so much for fun. coming on. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah. You
0: say that now. You wait till you walk away. You're gonna be like, "What did I
1: just do? What did I say?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Same, same. And I just, you know, feel like, can we just keep having coffee? Like, What's the rest of your day look like?
1: Exactly. (laughs) I could keep talking. Yeah,
0: I could. (laughs) As we conclude this heartfelt episode with Steph, we want to thank you for joining us today on Challenges That Change Us. If you've not had a chance to check out her magazine, Found Regional, it is a must do and we will have links in the show notes. If you are someone who is facing adversity, remember that you are not alone. Reach out, seek support, and together we can navigate life's challenges. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more inspiring stories and please share this episode with others who you think might benefit from it. Stay strong, stay resilient, and keep changing for the better. Until next Monday, I hope you guys have a fabulous week.